And Father, we do thank you for Jesus, Lord. We thank you that he paid it all. Lord, we thank you that our salvation, our hope, our joy, um, our thankfulness, Lord, is bound in the work of Christ. Lord, we thank you that, um, Lord, that you did it all. And Father, we pray that our lives would grow in in uh, respect and, and, and submission and commitment to you. Father, we love you, we praise you, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning. Can you believe that November is upon us? It's like, I feel like as the older I get, the years seem to go by faster. It seems like it's November already. It seems like we say this every month. It's November. We're gonna be, it's going to be December already. And <laughs> yes, we are, we are um, working along. This, the Thanksgiving celebration is in two weeks. I'm trying to ignore Christmas is kind of the theme of this month is, you know, we're going to kind of not think about Christmas this month. Because a holiday that is probably, I believe, the most Christian holiday is Thanksgiving. Um, we, it has the values of, that, that Christians are, are, are supposed to embody. And part of the problem with being thankful is you can't market it. You can't sell something. Christmas, they start advertising. You go to Costco before Halloween, they're already selling stuff. It's all about, you know, uh, the day after Thanksgiving is, what do they call it, Black Friday. And it's always about financial stuff, but to me it's Black Friday because it means shopping. And it's like, ugh, shopping, you know. The horses are off to the races. And it's, you know, it's all about money. But Thanksgiving is kind of gets skipped over. And so this month, I really, we've been working through the Psalms. That this month, I want to focus on Psalms that deal with Thanksgiving. Uh, so today we're going to be in Psalm 118. So in Psalm 118, almost right in the middle of your Bible. Um, <clears throat> and, and this Psalm deals with being thankful to God, which is where really all of our thankfulness is geared. Um, this Sunday in particular, I am extremely thankful for the time change. I'm just practicing being thankful. Like today of all days, I feel like it went the other way. Friday morning, we had a wedding, at my nephew's wedding in San Francisco. And so it's been, you know, classic family road trip. All the dogs, the kids, the roof rack, you know, loaded to bear, driving down the coast. And uh, I feel like I just finished a road trip. So, but I'm super thankful that this was the Sunday that the clocks went back and you got an extra hour. Um, but the origin of Thanksgiving started way back when, and some hundred years later, it was sanctioned as a U.S. holiday. And I looked it up, and it's interesting that Abraham Lincoln, uh, around the Civil War, declared uh, Thanksgiving to be a, na- a national holiday, and it happened on October 3rd. Of, of 1863, and on the last paragraph of his uh, declaration to the nation, um, I, I feel that it's a, appropriate to read this um, to kind of help us to get in the spirit of thanksgiving. He says, and it's kind of like in King James Version, so I have a, I'm going to try to read it as best as I can. Um, he said, It has seemed to me fit and proper that they should be solemnly, reverently, and gratefully acknowledged as with one heart and one voice by the whole American people. I do therefore invite my fellow citizens in every part of the United States and also to those who are in foreign lands to set apart and observe the last Thursday of November 
next as a day of thanksgiving and praise to our beneficent Father who dwelleth in the heavens. And I recommend to them that while offering up ascriptions justly do him, for such singular deliverances and blessings, they do also with humble penitence for our national perverseness and disobedience, commend to his tender care all of those who have become widows, orphans, mourners, or sufferers in the lamentable civil strife in which we are unavoidably engaged and fervently implore the imposition of the almighty hand to heal the wounds of the nation and to restore it as soon as may be consistent with the divine purpose to, to the full enjoyment of peace, harmony, tranquility, and union. And so when Thanksgiving was initiated uh, in our nation, we were basically asked by the president of the union to say, seek God the Father of, of, uh, that, that he would you know, heal our nation, that we would become thankful people. And I think that that's totally consistent with Scripture. And today we're going to look at Psalm 118. And this psalm is an interesting psalm. It, uh, it was a psalm that was sung during all of the feasts, um, during the Passover, during um, the Feast of Tabernacles, when all of the Jewish people came to Jerusalem. There would be much singing and praise, and this is one of the psalms that they would sing throughout. It's also thought that on the night of the Lord's uh, betrayal and arrest, at the Lord's Supper, uh, they go through all of Jesus' teaching, and at the very end, in Matthew twenty six thirty, we read, um, after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And most commentators throughout, from very early on, believe that this is the psalm that they sang as they went out to the Mount of Olives. And, and it's a, when we start looking at this psalm, it's amazing that this is what Jesus wanted to sing most likely. I don't think we're making it a, a stretch. That as he was about to be arrested, um, executed, and executed, that this is his heart uh, that he wanted the disciples to get. So I'm going to pray. We're going to read straight through the text. Uh, last week, I was uh, my, my wife uh, said, you know, you should have read the whole thing straight through because you kind of miss something when you don't read it straight through. So, you know, like every husband wants to honor his wife and to take, you know, they're normally right with, with stuff like this. So we're going to pray and read through the text. So, Father, we do thank you and praise you, Lord, for being so good to us. We thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you that we have so much to be thankful for. Father, we pray that you would help us to become a thankful people, that we would honor you with our hearts and our minds. And Lord, just our gratitude towards you. Father, as we read this text, Father, we pray that your spirit would illuminate its meaning, that you would soften our hearts. Lord, that you would help us to hear your voice and that we would uh, respond in obedience to you. We love you, Lord. We praise you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 118, verse 1. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Oh, let Israel say, his loving kindness is everlasting. Oh, let the house of Israel say, his loving kindness is everlasting. Oh, let those who fear the Lord say, his loving kindness is everlasting. From my distress I called upon the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me in a large place. 
The Lord is for me. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is for me among those who help me. Therefore, I will look with satisfaction on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All nations surround me. In the name of the Lord, I will surely cut them off. They surrounded me, yes. Yes, they surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I will surely cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They were extinguished as a fire of thorns. In the name of the Lord, I will surely cut them off. You pushed me violently so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and song. He has become my salvation. The sound of joyful shouting and salvation is in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord is exalted. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I will not die but live and tell of the works of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness. I shall enter through them. I shall give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous will enter through it. I shall give thanks to you for you have answered me and you have become my salvation. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. O Lord, do save, we beseech you. O Lord, we beseech you, do send prosperity. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God and he has given us light. Bind the festival sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. You are my God and I give thanks to you. You are my God and I extol you. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. And Father, we give you thanks. Lord, your loving kindness goes beyond our understanding. Father, last week we looked at uh, that we're crowned with your loving kindness and graciousness. Father, we pray that as we go through this text, Lord, that you would open our hearts. Lord, may we draw closer to you. May you increase our passion for you, Lord. We love you, Father, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So in the first verse, the psalmist begins with like the whole theme of this song. It says, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. Like that's that's simple. If you ever are in a place where you can't, like you're grumpy or you have nothing to be... You can always give thanks to the Lord because he's good. God is good. For his loving kindness is everlasting. And from this, he wants everybody to give thanks. He says, oh, let Israel say the nation for his loving kindness is everlasting. Oh, let the house of Aaron. So the, the, the priestly line, let them say his loving kindness is everlasting. Oh, let those who fear the Lord say his loving kindness is ever. Do you guys see a theme here over and over? What does it say for his loving kindness is everlasting. And this would be in a song would be like, it's called a antithesis or something. Some musical word, like one person says and everybody kind of belts back Antiphony. antiphony. That's what it is. And so let's just give this a shot. Okay. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. For his loving kindness is everlasting. Okay, let's try it again. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. Oh, let Israel say. 
Oh, let the house of Aaron say, let those who fear the Lord say, and really loud and Valley Baptist Church say, (laughs) see, if we just focus on God's loving kindness, it's everlasting. Wealth is not everlasting. Your possessions are not everlasting. Nothing is everlasting. But God's loving kindness is. And so when your world is upside down, focusing on the loving kindness of God, it's permanent. It's a rock. It's stable. It's not going. He's there. His love for us is beyond measure. And I to, to put this in context of the Last Supper, that Jesus would sing this psalm to them, to know that he was going to Gethsemane, that he was going to, in anguish, sweat, and, and so severely that, that his blood capillaries would burst and blood would come out of his sweat, that he would pray, Father, if this cup could pass before me, let it pass, but not my will, but your will. And that he loved us so much that he allowed the, all of the sin of the world to be laid upon him who knew no sin. That's love that we can't even understand. And when we, when we get a small glimpse of this love, it causes us to rejoice, to be thankful for a relationship with God that is only possible because God gave it to us. Verse 5, he says, From my distress I called upon the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me in a large place. The Lord is for me. I will not fear. I love those, you know, those no fear stickers. It's like, man, if you give me a week with you, I guarantee I can make you know, all these teams. I can make you afraid. <laughs> I'll just call my buddies in the teams and we'll, if you give me a week and I'll make your life miserable. Like I can make you afraid. It's easy to make people afraid. So I, I see those no fear stickers and I'm like, man, you should be afraid. Be afraid of God. Jesus said, don't fear man who can kill your body. Fear God who can cast your soul into hell. And David obviously is in a pit. He's go, he's, we know David's story. He's been in all kind of binds. And he said, in his distress, I called upon the Lord. He says, the Lord's fear for me. I won't fear. He's not fearing because there's not something to be afraid of. He's not fearing because he knows that God is bigger than his problem. What can man do to me? The Lord is for me among those who help me. Therefore, I will look with satisfaction on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust a man. When things aren't going right, my inclination is always to turn into my own ability or people's ability than to trust in the Lord. I try to do things in my own strength. And at the, when I reach the end of my rope and I can't solve the problem, it's like... I'm supposed to pray about this. Lord, will you help me? And then he says, it's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. So this week we're on the road trip and my, you know, we went up to Anna's grandfather's house. He's about 80. He's all alone on 50 acres. And so I had to do a lot of work for him. He watches a lot of TV. The news is on all day long. And Tuesday there was kind of a big election. And I don't really care what side you're on. You can be... A, a Democrat and be totally thrilled because in California they had a they had a victory. You could be a Republican or conservative and and be totally happy because nationwide there was a huge crossover. So no matter where you stand, it would be really easy this week to say, "Oh, great! This person's the leader. Now we're set." The Bible makes it clear: don't trust in men. Man will fail you. 
Trust in the Lord. Take refuge in the Lord. Then as David takes refuge in the Lord, this next section, we're going to see that the Lord delivers him. All nations surrounded me. Even to this day, you look at the nation of Israel from the time that they were reformed in 1948 after 2,000 years of not being in existence. From the day that they were formed as a nation again, all the nations surrounded them virtually and said, we want to wipe you off the face of the earth. That there are still people coming after Israel saying the Holocaust never happened. And as soon as we get a nuclear weapon put together, we're going to annihilate you. It was the same back then. All of the nations were told in the Old Testament that they weren't chosen because they were spectacular people. But in their weakness, God chose them to show the world that God exists, that there's no way that they could be what they are. And David says, all nations. And he says, all Like at this time, all nations surrounded him. And he says, in the name of the Lord, I will surely cut them off. You'll see this phrase three times. There's a bunch of phrases that kind of, it's a song. And it's hard to kind of sometimes talk through songs because they're meant to be sung. And he says, you know, the name of the Lord, I will surely cut you off. He doesn't say my own strength. I love David. I love the smack talk he gave to Goliath. He's like, he's like, I'm just a little boy. All I got rocks. But I took out, what did he take out, bears or lions? He took out something big. And he's like, in the name of the Lord, you're going to go down. And he realized that it was God. There's power in the name. He says, they surrounded me. Yes, they surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I will surely cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. Now, Ben back there, is you call it farming bees or ranching bees? or what's the, What do you do? Something like that. He's a beekeeper. That's safe. And I saw this picture of a bee beard, you know, like the guys who like let the bees go all over him. He's like, yeah, that's no big deal. I want to see it, just for the record. (laughs) But we've seen these pictures of these guys that walk around with bees crawling all over them, you know. And they swarm you and you just can't like get a like you swat them and they just fill in the gap. And David's saying, all these people are coming up. I can't, I swat them and it just fills in. There's nothing I can do. He's overcome with those that are coming against him. And it says that they were extinguished as a fire of thorns. In the name of the Lord, I will surely cut them off. You pushed me violently so that I was falling. And so this attack against him, you get this, you're pushing, you're pushing, you're pushing. You get to the edge of the cliff and they want justice done to him. He says, but the Lord helped me. He took refuge in the Lord. And as this is happening, he didn't say, I'm going to come back at you in my own strength. I'm going to rely upon the Lord. He says, the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and song. He has become my salvation. I, it reminds me of, the, it wasn't Daniel, but in the book of Daniel, uh, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego. You know, and they stand there and they say, you know what? My God will deliver me, but even if he doesn't, I'm not going to bow. And he said, you know what? I'm trusting on the Lord, and if I die through this, so be it. My trust is in the Lord. And he says in verse 15, the sound of joyful shouting and salvation is in the tents of the righteous. I love this. It's not this joyful shouting of the songs of the righteous. It doesn't say in huge mansions with a 10-car garage filled with Porsches. That would be like a bunch of Porsches, you know, like that's what my drink I would love to have, you know, but I never will. And he says in the tents, 
And that this was often sung during the Feast of Tabernacles. I was, I was in Israel for the Feast of Tabernacles this year. And it's hilarious. You're in the walls of Jerusalem, which are huge. I mean, huge. Way bigger than this building. And you walk down the streets and there's little tents set up. And the tents are set up. You, the roof can't be solid because you have to see the stars. And they carry around these branches. And it's to remember God's provision as they wandered through the wilderness. And often in these times of not having stuff, I've found that this is where we're most thankful. When we went to build the house a couple of weeks ago down in Mexico, the guy told us, he's like, you know, we Americans have so much and we go to give a house and they have so little. But he was he was explaining a phrase in Spanish that that essentially meant that his your heart is full, that he's like, you know, your heart's full. And so you're content and you don't need any more food. And he's like, you know what? They have so little, but but their hearts are full and they're content. And we miss this. We don't have this in America because we have all of this stuff and our hearts aren't content. And I, you know, just seeing this, there's something about poverty or times of need that we we refine what we're thankful for. I think this is why fasting, when you fast food and you realize, oh, I eat so much, then it's like you're fasting and every time you're hungry, it's like, oh Lord, I'm so thankful that I have food to eat every day. I'm so thankful for what you've done. So as you get stuff taken away, it's easier to become thankful for things that you have. And so it's in the tents of the righteous that you hear the joyful shouting and of salvation. So you get this picture of singing in these tents. It says, the right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord is exalted. The right hand of the Lord does violently. So he talks about the right hand of the Lord. And that's normally referring to discipline. Like that the Lord's discipline upon them is the right hand. If you'll turn with me to the right, to Habakkuk chapter 2, just to show you an example of this. Habakkuk is a hard little book to find. It's before the New Testament. Keep your place in Psalms. And in Habakkuk, uh, it's, it's in the small ones, so you've got to go like, let's see here. I have to find it first. Okay, so if you hit Jonah, keep going to the right. There's Jonah, Micah, Nahum, then Habakkuk. If that doesn't work, there, every Bible has a table of contents. Don't be embarrassed to look in the table of contents. It'll tell you right where it is. This is how we learn. And as God is talking to Habakkuk about what's going to come in chapter 2, verse um, 15, there's a bunch of woes in Habakkuk. And we see, woe to you who make your neighbors drink in verse 15, who mix in your venom even to make them drunk so as to look onto their nakedness. You will be filled with disgrace rather than honor. Now you yourself drink and expose your own nakedness. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter disgrace will come upon your glory. And this is like powerful, beautiful Old Testament language that literally you want to get people drunk so you can see their nakedness. Well, your shame is coming and you're going to drink from the cup in the Lord's right hand and disgrace is going to come upon you that you don't know. So when we see the right hand of the Lord in the Bible, it's normally like, look out, this isn't good. This is not good. He says that they're shouting, they're, they're wandering through the wilderness, they're being disciplined. And he talks about, you know, even in the discipline, the Lord is, um, this word has been killing me all week. Valiantly, did I say it? Exalted. Like even in this spanking that they're receiving, God is good. He says, I will not die, but live. He's like, God is 
punishing me. He's disciplining me, but I'm not going to die. I'm going to endure it. He says, I will tell of the works of the Lord once I get through this. And he says, read that verse 18. The Lord has disciplined me severely. The Lord took him out to the woodshed big time. Like, that's not good. I mean, when the Lord is disciplining you, and he says, I just can hear David's voice. The Lord has disciplined me severely. Just a couple of weeks ago, we talked about forgiveness. With David with Bathsheba. He murdered a guy. He, he broke every of the Ten Commandments except for the Sabbath. And he might have done that if we just don't read it in the text. It was brutal. God gave him a year. And then he came with Nathan and he gave this punishment. David knows the hand of discipline upon him from the Lord. Now hold your place and go over with me to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. Hold your place in Psalms. In Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 8. You know, discipline from the Lord is good. Like, this is not something that we should be, oh, the Lord's disciplining me. As a father, you have to discipline. As a parent, you have to discipline. And it's hard. But you know the chapter 12. So chapter 12, verse 8. And here the author of Hebrews begins talking about the discipline of the Lord. And he says, but if you are without discipline of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not as sons. He said, listen, if you're a child of God, we all get disciplined from God, all of us, because none of us are perfect. Furthermore, verse 9, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good so that we may share in his holiness. He says, listen, your earthly fathers are not perfect. And some of you may have had really bad dads. There are a lot of bad fathers out there today. I came in from an abusive home. My mother was the one who was abusing me that I got finally pulled out of the house. And so it's hard to discipline. And even if you're a good dad or parent, you make mistakes sometimes. And we need to be able to apologize to our kids. Say, hey, I blew it this time. I'm really sorry. But he says, you know what? God is not like your earthly dads because he's perfect. And so when he disciplines you, he knows what he's doing. And in verse 11, I love, I have it highlighted, underlined. Duh, you know, we, all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful. <laughs> when you're getting disciplined, it's not fun. It's correction, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. So as we're disciplined by the Lord, and back to the psalm, like the David, he knows. He's like, I've been disciplined severely, but God's not going to kill me. He's, I'm going to live. And when I come out on the other side, I'm going to proclaim God to everybody. And then he goes in verse 19, he starts understanding, open to me the gates of righteousness. He's getting disciplined for his unrighteousness. He's being disciplined. He says, Lord, I want to participate in the righteousness. Lord, I shall enter through them, these gates of righteousness. I shall give thanks to you, to the Lord. I have that part highlighted. There's thanks all through this. You know, let me enter into thanksgiving and into the, the, the gates of righteousness. Then I'll give thanks to the Lord. He goes on, verse 20, this is the gate of the Lord. 
The righteous will enter through it. I shall give thanks to you, for you have answered me. You have become my salvation. This psalm, you know, I I said, oh, in December we're going to do messianic psalms. But it's hard because Jesus is all through the scriptures. He's everywhere. And you start reading this psalm and it's like, wait a minute. This sounds really familiar. So if you hold your place here and go to John chapter 10. And also keep your place in John chapter 10 because we're going to come back here in a few minutes. So in John chapter 10 in the New Testament. Verses, where are we going to go? Verse 1 at chapter 10. And in, my, in the New American Standard, it uses the word door. Some use gate, but it's the same picture. David's talking about, Lord, show me the gate of righteousness, and I can enter through to enter into the righteousness. And Jesus starts saying in verse 1, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep, but climbs up some other way, he's a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door or gate is a shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name, and he leads them out. When he puts forth all his own, he goes ahead of them, and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. A stranger they simply will not follow, but will flee from him because they do not know the voice of strangers. Now, the gate is not literally a gate. There'd be a pin and there'd be an opening, and the shepherd would stand in the doorway, and he's the gate. He literally, the sheep have to pass through him. And verse, um, skipping down to verse 7, it says, So Jesus said to them again, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. He is the gate. All who come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief only comes to steal and kill and destroy I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Down to verse 14. I am the good shepherd and I know my own and my own know me. Even as the father knows me and I know the father, I lay down my life for the sheep. Jesus makes it very clear that he is the gate of righteousness. He says in John chapter 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life with the thee there. That is, it is the only way. He said, nobody comes to the Father but through me, because he is the gate. But hold your place over in John chapter 10, because we're going to come back in a few minutes. But back to Psalm 118. He says, open to me the gates of righteousness. I shall enter through them. I shall give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous will enter through it. He, he's speaking of the Messiah that would be coming. That in order to go to righteousness, you go through the gate. He said, I shall give thanks to you for you answered me and you've become my salvation. David was looking forward to the promise. We look backward to the Messiah's coming. Then he goes on to say in verse 22. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is all through the New Testament. Over in Luke chapter 20. I'm going to have you guys holding your places all over in the Bible. So if you feel comfortable finding John, we're going to go to Luke chapter 20, verse 9. This, and remember, this psalm, this psalm they sang as Jesus was about to get executed. 
that it would, as, as the triumphal entry, as Jesus came in, this would have been one of, during the feast time, it would be a psalm that they would be singing over and over and over again. And that God works like this, that the whole Bible is one. That in this psalm, there's so much prophecy. And in Luke chapter 20, Jesus tells a parable. I have to hurry up and get there. So in John chapter 20, verse 9, it begins. He says, and he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and rented it out to the vine growers and went on a journey for a long time. So there's, a, there's like a grape vineyard, a lot of land. The owner rents it out, he leases it out, and he goes wherever. He, he travels a long way away, so he's not anywhere near the land. And while he's gone, let's see here, verse 10. At the harvest time, he sent a slave to the vine growers so that they would give him some of the produce of the vineyard. But the vine growers beat him and said, sent him away empty-handed. And he proceeded to send another slave. And they beat him also and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he proceeded to send a third. And, and, and this one also they wounded and cast out. And the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. He says, okay, I've sent three slaves. They beat everyone up. They're not going to pay their rent. They're not doing, what do I do now? Okay, well, I'll send my son. My son carries my authority. It's equivalent to the owner going. And so he sends his son. And in verse 14, it says, But when the vine growers saw him, they reasoned with one another, saying, This is the heir. Let us kill him, so that the inheritance will be ours. They say, Oh, we kill him. This land is ours. We can steal the land. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy the vine growers and will give the vineyard to others. When they heard it, they said, may it never be. But Jesus looked at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. He's quoting this psalm. And he's, all the religious leaders are there. And he said, you know what? I've entrusted the priest to carry out the message. They've contaminated it. I've tried over and over and over again. Now the father sends his son to straighten everything out, and they're going to kill him. And he goes on to say, verse 18, Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. The scribes and the chief, chief priests tried to lay hands on him that very hour, and they feared the people, for they understood that he spoke this parable against them. They understood very clearly what Jesus was saying, and they didn't like it. Then Jesus reads this, they sing this psalm at the Lord's Supper. Then Jesus is, he's executed on the cross. He's buried. He rises from the dead. He lives 40 days and then he ascends into heaven. Pentecost happens in Acts chapter 2. Then in Acts chapter 4, we read the story where, where Peter and the apostles are going out and a man is healed and they arrest Peter. So keep going over to chapter 4. So in Acts chapter 4, to the right, just to see this psalm unpacked throughout the New Testament so that we can better understand it. And so in Psalm chapter, I mean Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 8, Peter is standing before the Sanhedrin. He's under arrest because a lame man who had been lame for years is healed. And they're upset with him. And they're standing before them on trial. And Peter says to them, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are on trial today... 
for a benefit done to a sick man as to how this man has been made well. He says, listen, they're trying to bring him from trial for something else. He says, I just want to make it clear. If I'm standing here today because this man who is sick is now well before you, this is why I'm on trial because we healed somebody. Let it be clear to you. Verse 10, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, remember there is power in the name. This man stands here before you in good health. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which has become the chief cornerstone, speaking of Christ. And salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. That's powerful. That, that here Peter, he remembers what Jesus said in that parable. He remembers that psalm. Then after Jesus is gone, he goes to this psalm to explain to the priest, listen, Jesus, he's the Messiah. Everything is bound in Jesus. There is no salvation in anybody else. And we think, oh, that's Christians are so narrow-minded. I didn't write the rule book. I just, like, this doesn't seem, but it's like if somebody throws you a lifeline, you don't complain that they didn't send a helicopter with a, a ladder on it. God, it's God's business. He sent Jesus. And it's clear, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, the life. The apostles, right after his resurrection, said, He's the cornerstone. Paul, later, if you keep going to the right in Ephesians chapter 2, continues with this cornerstone concept. And in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19, the great doctrinal book of the New Testament, like this is my favorite book because there's there's all kinds of doctrine in the first half, then there's all kinds of meddling in the second half. Like you can... God can tear you up with the book of Ephesians and equip you with sound doctrine with this book. And in verse 19 of chapter 2, we read from Paul. He says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's households, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. He says, Listen, the foundation is built from the cornerstone. I am not a builder. But like that edge piece, like when we go to Mexico, I hear words like, oh, we've got to get it squared and plumbed and even and, you know, all kinds of stuff. Because if one little corner is out of whack, the whole building is out of whack. And he says, listen, in verse 19, you're all a part of this. And the foundation, the apostles and prophets, like it's being built from this corner, the cornerstone of Christ Jesus in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Jesus is the cornerstone. Jesus is at the heart of the Scriptures from Genesis to Revelation. It is all about Jesus. It's not about the type of music we listen to. It's not about wearing nice clothes. It's not about going to church every Sunday. It's not about religion. It's about Jesus. And He did it all. I love that hymn we sang before I started. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. There is nothing we can do to add to our salvation. Jesus did it all. He's the cornerstone. Then Peter, at the end of his life, he quotes from this verse in, right after Jesus' resurrection. At the end of his life in First Peter, 
I believe it's chapter 2. He's, so First Peter, keep going to the right. Uh, go past Hebrews, James, and then you get to First Peter. So at the, towards the end of his life, when he writes First Peter, in the midst of all of the suffering, he starts using from this psalm the cornerstone. It's very important for us to understand. And in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1, Peter continues, he says, Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord, and coming to him as a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value then is for you who believe, but for those who disbelieve. The stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, for they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were also appointed." But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So this picture of we were enemies of God, our sin, sin entered the world. We are enemies. People are not naturally good. Even the people who we think are good, that's by our standard, not by God's standard. Jesus came, lived the perfect life, made the sacrifice for us that when we believe in him, we receive salvation. The spirit comes and seals us. And from Jesus's work, that's where everything is built. It's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. If this church ever gets off track and loses that it's about Jesus, I'm like a broken record every Sunday. You're going to hear Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. He's the answer. It is the one hit wonder. We'll repeat it. We love this song. Jesus paid it all. So back in Psalms, as he's talking about the gate of the Lord, the righteous will enter through it. I shall give thanks to you. Then he says, the stone which the builders rejected have, has become the chief cornerstone. That Jesus would come. He's going to be the gate, the way, the truth, and the life. You go to the Father through him. He, it's his righteousness, not our own. It's the chief stone. He says, verse 23, this is the Lord's doing. David didn't come up with this plan. I didn't come up with this plan. If we came up with a plan of salvation, if you look at other religions that are uh, not biblical, it's man's plan. Man's plan makes sense to me. The gospel makes no sense to me. Why in the world would Jesus die for me when I was a sinner? Why in the world? I'm terrible. Why would he do this for me? My plan is, well, if I want a cup of coffee, I pay a buck. If I do this, checks and balance. You, you pay for it. So I'll create a system that if you do a bunch of good stuff, if the good outweighs the bad at the end of your life, you're good. But the problem with that system is you can never, ever, ever do enough. I heard J. Vernon McGee years ago 
in his, you know, southern voice or whatever, it, saying that it would be like coming up with a system where if you could stand on the coast of California and if you could jump to Hawaii, you'd be saved. And then a bunch of people line up and one person jumps two feet. Then you get an Olympic long jumper that can jump 40 feet. And that person says, I'm in. I'm golden. I jump way further than all of them. Look how good I am at jumping. He says, but listen, the deal was you had to jump to Hawaii. You fell way short. And this is like righteousness. It's not my plan. It's God's plan. And people's. You, you, I've been there. We've all probably been there. It doesn't make, how can God just come out of heaven, live a perfect life, and then have the world's sin placed upon him? And by belief, it's too simple. It's too simple. I think this is where faith, faith, I, I'm not God. And David gets it. He says, this is the Lord's doing. And it's marvelous in our eyes. For those who have been redeemed by faith in Christ, oh, it's great. We sing. And even this, it's funny because this service is kind of turned into the clapping service. And I, and like, uh, you know, it's 830. I'm like, man, my coffee hasn't kicked in at 1030. So I'm like, last week, I'm the one trying to get him clapping. And it's a bad thing when I'm trying to get him clapping. I'm like, okay, well, we just don't clap during the second service. It's okay. It doesn't matter. <laughs> but it, but it brings out joy. They don't clap. It's okay. They, they have joy in other. They sing loud. But it's that when we receive God's grace, we have nothing but thankfulness. And he says, out of all of this, it's marvelous in our eyes. And then the verse that so many people know, but don't know it in context. In the midst of this, we get that verse. This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. If we could just memorize that, when you wake up this week, if you could just, when you first open your eyes and you can kind of, you know, do a gunner scripture memory, like be close, you know, it, it counts. You say, man, Lord, this is your day. I want to be glad. I want to rejoice in it. Lord, every day, like all day, if we would wake up with this verse and you put God at the forefront of your brain, I guarantee your day will be more joyful. He goes on to say, oh, Lord, do save. We beseech you. Lord, save us. And I don't know if he's talking about salvation or the nation here. Like, save us from our enemies. Then he says, oh, Lord, we beseech you. Do send prosperity. It's okay for you to ask for God's blessing. Like, look, now I'm not going to say, now there's a lot of people that will say, well, give a bunch of money. Then God will, you know, it's like scattering bread on the water, quoting a verse. And he's out of It doesn't, he's just saying, it's not that. He's saying, Lord, will you bless us? And we've been blessed beyond measure. The poorest people in the United States are richer than 99% of the world's population of all time. And so more of whatever is not going to make us happier. But more of God will. When we start realizing what God is, that's where our contentment comes from. But it's okay. Say, Lord, I need work. Lord, I want to provide. Lord, he's put this into us. Send prosperity. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has given us light. Now, if you saved your place in John, like I asked you to, but then I told you to go to a bunch of other places, so it got too confusing for me. But he's given us light. So in John chapter 9, Jesus obviously knew the Bible better than any man that ever lived. 
And so I shouldn't be surprised when it's like, wow, Lord, like, how did you, you know, like, you knew the Old Testament pretty good. Well, of course, it's his book. He's the author. And in John chapter 9, verse 1, you know, the, well, maybe we don't really have to read the whole story. But this is the story where there's a guy who's blind. And Jesus comes up and he starts talking. And he says to them in verse 5, while I am in the world, I am the light of the world. That Jesus is the light. He came to shine light to the world. And most of us at one point of our life were like cockroaches. We scattered when the light exposes us. That's why we say, I don't like being convicted of sin. Let me stay in the darkness. And after he says, I'm the light of the world, he spits. I love it. Jesus would have gotten a ticket in Singapore. Yeah, I'm still holding my, like, not being able to spit in Singapore. But he spits. He makes mud. What an odd way to heal somebody. He spits in the dirt. He makes a mud pie with spit. This is gross. And then he puts it in the guy's eye. That seems like a dirty way to heal somebody. And after that, he he heals this guy from blindness. After saying, I'm the light of the world. Now, back in this psalm, remember, it said, the Lord is God and he has given us light. John the Baptist, in the beginning of John, he didn't say that we're not the light of the world. We reflect the light to the world. We share Jesus with people. It was really fun preaching that one Sunday because there's like a bush up here and I went and hid in the bush and I... In my old military days, when you needed to communicate with a flat, with a, an aircraft or somebody far away, you take a little mirror and you you take the sun and you you shine at them, or you use your watch and you annoy your brother or sister who's sitting next to you. And you, you know, we've all done that. And the little bright of lie—that's what we do with Jesus. We're just lights and we reflect Him, so He shines on people. Some people He annoys. Other people are like, oh, this is marvelous. He's the light of the world, and they say, bind the festival sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. And this psalm would have been sung during the triumphal entry. And many commentators believe that this verse is why they started casting their branches down before Jesus because of the psalm, that he was a light he was entering. They knew. They just thought that he was coming to be the king, the ruler during that time, not as the suffering servant. He will come to reign and rule over all over the world at a second coming. But they throw their palm branches down and they believe that it came from this. Uh, during the Feast of Tabernacles, they wave their palm branches as a reminder of God's provision for shelter. And he ends here and he says, You are my God and I give thanks to you. You are my God and I extol you. Can you say that? My God. I love, I love that. My God. And I give thanks to you. I extol you. I praise you. I give thanks to the Lord for he is good. For his loving kindness is everlasting. That there's so much praise. And the bottom line of this, as we conclude here, is that thankfulness, as we go about this month, is le- we can be thankful because of our relationship with God. So if you're not sure that you have a relationship with God, it's as simple as saying, I believe. And then once you have relationship Man, your gratitude towards the Lord just increases. In Philippians 4, verses 6 through 7, we're told, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, highlight thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. I love it. God tells us that when you're worried, when you have anxiety, when you're happy, when you're all things, give it to God with thankfulness. 
And we're told that when we do this, that the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So we're told to be thankful. And in response of being thankful and giving it to the Lord, he gives us peace. And I wish I could explain it, but my disclaimer is the Bible says it's beyond our comprehension, literally beyond our minds. We can, I cannot explain it to you. But if you've experienced it, you know it, what I'm talking about. And I think that we can, this month, as we become thankful people, like it can take practice. There's a game I learned when I got married. I'm going to teach it to you all. It's called the thankful game. I talk about it a lot. It's simple. You go through the whole alphabet. We're going to play a little test run. I'll go first. So you guys can help me out. So, so you start with A. And of course, I have an easy one because I'm thankful that God gave me my wife, Anna. So B, does anybody have a B that you're thankful for? The Bible. Okay, Dolores. C, who's thankful for something that starts with C? Cray, there we go. That's a, thankful for Jesus. That's a very good Christian one. D. What? Don. Don's the man, her husband. E. Everything. There we go. A, B, C, D, E, F. We're going to save her for X and Y. We're on F, food? Okay, thankful for food. G. God. H. Heaven. She's good. Okay, Dolores, you got. We got to make them. So, okay, H I. No, no, I. Somebody shout out an I. It's much harder with, for ice. Ice is a good thing, especially when it's really hot and you don't have it. That's a great invention. Ice. We we take it for granted every day. There are people around the world that have never experienced ice. There are other places. If there's ice, you might not want to drink it because we will get sick. Okay, A B C D E F G H I J. Joy jam. What did you say, jam? Jam, jelly jam. I like jam. Jesus, there's another good one. Joy, jam, Jesus, all good. K, I think, is the next one. Kindness. L, loving. Okay. L, M, mom. Mercy, that's a good one. Mercy. N, N. What? Night. Night, nighttime, okay. Oh, oh, I'm just trying to count the alphabet at this point. Oranges, what did you say, Alberto? Oi, oi. <laughs> okay, oh, L-M-N-O-P, P, what? Papa, okay, yeah, P, L-M-N-O-P, Q, ooh, that's a tough one. Somebody work on Q, we'll move. What, quiet, peace and quiet. Is that what I like? Peace and quiet. That's a good one. What's that? Oh, yeah. All the like, oh, yeah. Okay. What comes after Q? A, B, R, R. Rest. Rest is a good one. R, S, S. Salvation. Suspension, did you say? Redemption. But I like suspension in my car. That's a nice one. T. Tom. We've got a shout out. A U. Is there a U out there for thankful? You, okay. <laughs> okay, we, we let this slide. You, understanding. understanding that we have understanding. You, A, B, C, D, F, G, H, H, V, V. Victory in Jesus. <laughs> That's what you Okay, V, W, the word. No, I'm looking for the next alphabet letter. It's harder up here. X. Can't say xylophone. X-rays. X-rays are great. So yeah, when you break something, you have an X-ray. 
Y, X, Y, Y. You, y'all. Y'all, I'm thankful for y'all. And Z. Z. Zebras. See, it's a silly game, but you see how much you guys are smiling afterwards? Being thankful is the antidote for about everything. If you are grumpy, angry, ticked off, just having a bad day, stop and just count your blessings. Name them one by one. There's a hymn, I think. Something like, count your blessings, name them one by one. It was George's favorite. And when we start counting our blessings, when we start giving thanks, just playing this silly game, all your faces are lit up. It was silly. And I, I really dislike it when I'm having a bad day and Anna looks at me and she says, why don't we play the thankful game? I don't want to play the thankful game because then I can't be grumpy, <laughs> you know? So let's give thanks this month. And hopefully we do it all this month. We'll become thankful people. So, Father, we thank you, Lord that you are light, that you're the way, the truth, and the life. We thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that we have so much to be thankful for. Lord, we thank you that you have redeemed us. Lord, that you've made us whole again. We thank you that you um, have brought us into relationship with you. Lord, that it's not contingent on our own works. Lord, there's nothing that we could do. And the burden of the burden would be unbearable to think that we would have to earn our way into heaven or earn our way into relationship with you. That we thank you, Lord, that you gave us salvation. Lord, that you did it all. And Father, we really need your help in becoming thankful people. Lord, I pray that you would just, Lord, that you would just kind of bring this psalm to our mind, Lord, if we're having a bad week, Lord. Lord, help us to wake up. With the verse, Lord, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Father, we love you. We thank you for your discipline. We thank you for your provision. We thank you, Lord, that you are God and we are not. We love you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand as you're able.